0: The Love of Reading, featuring selections from novels, complete short stories, poetry, and nonfiction, read for you by Linda Pack. There is a cartoon by Edward Coren in a recent New Yorker magazine that shows a couple surrounded, in fact, they're being menaced by weighty tomes on legs. And the caption reads, the classics can be so intimidating. So this seems to be particularly true of novels written in a stream-of-consciousness style. Everybody wants to read Marcel Proust, William Faulkner, James Joyce, and Virginia Woolf, but they seem to have trouble doing it. And by they, I mean me and everybody else I know. But I have found that the secret to unlocking the beauty and power of this type of writing is to read it and hear it out loud. So let us not be afraid of Virginia Woolf. Virginia Woolf's novel, To the Lighthouse, is considered by many, and I am one, to be her finest. I'm going to read for you a selected condensation of the 200-page text, and I will begin at the very beginning and end at the very end with everything in the original sequence and nothing out of order. It is one of the most beautifully crafted novels in the English language. In her diary in 1926, Virginia Woolf wrote, I'm making up to the lighthouse. The sea is to be heard all through it. She envisioned the structure of the book as a line drawing, with with the literal passage of time as the connecting corridor between the pillars of before and after. Virginia Woolf named these three parts. The first part of the book is called The Window, the second called Time Passes, and the third part, The Lighthouse. The setting is the same in all three parts, Mr. and Mrs. Ramsay's summer home in the Scottish Hebrides, where they traditionally take their summer holidays with their children and invited guests. Their house overlooks a bay where there is a lighthouse. I focused this abridgment on just four of the many characters. Missus Ramsay, who is a wife and a mother and the epitome of the Victorian ideals of womanly grace. Mr Ramsay, her husband, who is by profession a philosopher. Their youngest son, James, and also one of their guests who we will here mentioned in the first part, but not get to know until the third part, a young woman named Lily Briscoe, who is trying to discover how to express herself as an artist. Part one, called the Window, begins some few years before the First World War. Mister and Missus Ramsay and their eight children have been joined at the house by a number of friends and colleagues. On this first occasion. Lily Briscoe has her easel set up outside the house on the edge of the lawn and she is trying to paint Mrs Ramsay and her son James as they sit in the window of the drawing-room. Part 1. The Window. Yes, of course if it's fine tomorrow, said Mrs Ramsay, but you'll have to be up with the lark, she added. To her son, these words conveyed an extraordinary joy. As if it were settled, the expedition were bound to take place, and the wonder to which he had looked forward for years and years, it seemed, was, after a night's darkness and a day's sail, within touch. Since he belonged, even at the age of six, To that great clan which cannot keep this feeling separate from that, but must let future prospects with their joys and sorrows cloud what is actually at hand, since to such people, even in earliest childhood, any turn in the wheel of sensation has the power to crystallize and transfix the moment upon which its gloom or radiance rests, James Ramsay, sitting on the floor, cutting out pictures from the illustrated catalogue of the Army and Navy stores, endowed the picture of a refrigerator, as his mother spoke, with heavenly bliss. It was fringed with joy. The wheelbarrow and the lawnmower, the sound of the poplar trees, leaves whitening before rain, rooks calling, brooms knocking, Dresses rustling, all these were so colored and distinguished in his mind that he had already his private code, his secret language, though he appeared the image of stark and uncompromising severity with his high forehead and his fierce blue eyes, impeccably candid and pure, frowning slightly at the sight of a human frailty, so that his mother watching him guide his scissors neatly round the refrigerator, imagined him all red and ermine on the bench, or directing a stern and momentous enterprise in some crisis of public affairs. "'But,' said his father, stopping in front of the drawing window, "'it won't be fine.' "'Had there been an axe handy?' a poker or any weapon that would have gashed a hole in his father's breast and killed him there and then james would have seized it such were the extremes of emotion that mr Ramsay excited in his children's breasts by his mere presence standing as now lean as a knife narrow as the blade of one grinning sarcastically not only with the pleasure of disillusioning his son and casting ridicule upon his wife, who was a thousand times better in every way than he was, James thought, but also with some secret conceit at his own accuracy of judgment. What he said was true. It was always true. He was incapable of untruth, never tampered with the fact "'never altered a disagreeable word to suit the pleasure or convenience "'of any mortal being, least of all his own children, "'who, sprung from his loins, should be aware from childhood "'that life is difficult, facts uncompromising, "'and the passage to that fabled land "'where our brightest hopes are extinguished, "'our frail barks founder in the darkness.' here mr ramsay would straighten his back and narrow his little blue eyes upon the horizon one that needs above all courage truth and the power to endure but it may be fine i expect it will be fine said mrs ramsay making some little twist of the reddish-brown stocking she was knitting impatiently if she finished it tonight, if they did go to the lighthouse after all, it was the housekeeper for his little boy, who was threatened with a tuberculous hip, together with a pile of old magazines and some tobacco, and indeed whatever she could find lying about, not really wanted, but only littering the room, to give those poor fellows, who must be bored to death sitting all day with nothing to do but polish the lamp and trim the wick and... "'Rake about on their scrap of garden, something to amuse them. "'For how would you like to be shut up for a whole month at a time "'and possibly more in stormy weather upon a rock the size of a tennis lawn?' "'She would ask. "'And to have no letters or newspapers. "'And to see nobody. "'If you were married, not to see your wife, "'not to know how your children were. "'If they were ill, if they'd fallen down and broken their legs or arms.' To see the same dreary waves breaking week after week, and then a a dreadful storm coming, and the windows covered with spray, and the birds dashed against the lamp, and the whole place rocking, and not to be able to put your nose out of doors for fear of being swept into the sea? How would you like that? She asked, addressing herself particularly to her daughters. So she added rather differently one must take them whatever comforts one can. Turning, she looked across the bay, and there, sure enough, coming regularly across the waves, first two quick strokes, then one long, steady stroke, was the light of the lighthouse. It had been lit. In a moment, he would ask her, Are we going to the lighthouse? And she would have to say... "'No, not tomorrow. Your father says not.' "'Happily, Mildred came in to fetch him, and the bustle distracted him. "'But he kept looking back over his shoulder as Mildred carried him out, "'and she was certain that he was thinking, "'We're not going to the lighthouse tomorrow.' "'And she thought, he will remember that all his life.' "'No,' she thought, putting together some of the pictures he had cut out. "'A refrigerator, a mowing machine.' A gentleman in evening dress. Children never forget. For this reason, it was so important what one said and what one did. And it was a relief when they went to bed. For now, she need not think about anybody. She could be herself by herself. And that was what now she often felt the need of. To think, well not even to think, to be silent, to be alone. All the being and the doing, expansive, glittering, vocal, evaporated, and one shrunk with a sense of solemnity to being oneself, a wedge-shaped core of darkness, something invisible to others. Although she continued to knit and sat upright, it was thus that she felt herself. And this self, having shed its attachments, was free for the strangest adventures. When life sank down for a moment, the range of experience seemed limitless. And to everybody there was always this sense of unlimited resources, she supposed. One after another, she, Lily Briscoe, must feel our apparitions. The things you know us by are simply childish. Beneath, it is all dark, it is all spreading, it is unfathomably deep but now and again we rise to the surface and that is what you see us by. Her horizon seemed to her limitless. There were all the places she had not seen, the Indian plains. She felt herself pushing aside the thick leather curtain of a church in Rome. This core of darkness could go anywhere, for no one saw it. They could not stop it she thought, exulting. There was freedom. There was peace. There was most welcome of all, a summoning together, a resting on a platform of stability. Not as oneself did one find rest ever in her experience. She accomplished here something dexterous with her needles. But as a wedge of darkness... Losing personality, one lost the fret, the hurry, the stir, and there rose to her lips always some exclamation of triumph over life when things came together in this peace, this rest, this eternity; and, pausing there, she looked out to meet that stroke of the lighthouse-the long steady stroke, the last of the three, which was her stroke for watching them in this mood, always at this hour. One could not help attaching oneself to the one thing especially of the things one saw, and this thing, the long, steady stroke, was her stroke. Often she felt herself sitting and looking, sitting and looking, with her work in her hands, until she became the thing she looked at, that light, For example, and it would lift up on it some little phrase or other which had been lying in her mind like that, Children don't forget, children don't forget, which she would repeat and begin adding to it, It will end, it will end, she said, It will come, it will come, when suddenly she added, We are in the hands of the Lord." But instantly she was annoyed with herself for saying that. Who had said it? Not she! She had been trapped into saying something she did not mean. She looked up over her knitting and met the third stroke, and it seemed to her like her own eyes meeting her own eyes searching as she alone could search into her mind and heart, purifying out of existence that lie, any lie. She praised herself in praising the light without vanity, for she was stern, she was searching. She was beautiful like that light. It was odd, she thought, how if one was alone, one leant to inanimate things... Trees, streams, flowers, felt they expressed one, felt they became one, felt they knew one, in a sense were one, felt an irrational tenderness thus, she looked at that long steady light as for oneself, there rose and she looked and looked with her needle suspended, there curled up off the floor of her mind, rose from the lake of one's being, a mist, a bride to meet her lover. What brought her to say that we are in the hands of the Lord, she wondered. The insincerity slipping in among the truths roused her, annoyed her. She returned to her knitting again. How could any lord have made this world, she asked. With her mind, she'd always seized the fact that there is no reason, order, justice, but suffering, death, the poor. There was no treachery too base for the world to commit, she knew that. No happiness lasted, she knew that. She knit with firm composure, slightly pursing her lips and without being aware of it, so stiffened and composed the lines of her face in a habit of sternness that when her husband passed, he could not help noting, as he passed, the sternness at the heart of her beauty. It saddened him, and her remoteness pained him, and he felt, as he passed, that he could not protect her, and when he reached the hedge he was sad. "'He could do nothing to help her. "'He must stand by and watch her. "'Indeed, the infernal truth was he made things worse for her. "'He was irritable. He was touchy. "'He'd lost his temper over the lighthouse. "'He looked into the hedge, into its intricacy, its darkness. "'Always, Mrs. Ramsay felt, "'one helped oneself out of solitude reluctantly, by laying hold of some little odd or end, some sound, some sight. She listened, but it was all very still. Cricket was over, the children were in their baths, there was only the sound of the sea. She stopped knitting. She held the long reddish-brown stocking dangling in her hands a moment. She saw the light again. With some irony in her interrogation, for when one woke at all, one's relations changed. She looked at the steady light, the pitiless, the remorseless, which was so much her, yet so little her, which had her at its beck and call. She woke in the night and saw it bent across their bed, stroking the floor. But for all that, she thought, watching it with fascination, hypnotized, as if it were stroking with its silver fingers some sealed vessel in her brain whose bursting would flood her with delight, she had known happiness, exquisite happiness, intense happiness, And it silvered the rough waves a little more brightly as daylight faded, and the blue went out of the sea, and it rolled in waves of pure lemon, which curved and swelled and broke upon the beach, and the ecstasy burst in her eyes, and waves of pure delight raced over the floor of her mind, and she felt, It is enough. It is enough. "'He turned and saw her. "'Ah, she was lovely, "'lovelier now than ever he thought. "'But he could not speak to her. "'He could not interrupt her. "'He wanted urgently to speak to her "'now that James was gone and she was alone at last, "'but he resolved no, he would not interrupt her. "'She was aloof from him now in her beauty, "'in her sadness.' He would let her be, and he passed her without a word, though it hurt him that she should look so distant, and he could not reach her, he could not do nothing to help her. And again, he would have passed her without a word had she not, at that very moment, given him of her own accord, of her own free will, what she knew he would never ask, and called to him, and gone to him, for he wished... She knew, to protect her. You won't finish that stocking tonight, he said, pointing to her stocking. No, she said, flattening the stocking out upon her knee. I shan't finish it. And what then? She felt that he was still looking at her, and that his look had changed. He wanted something Wanted the thing she always found it so difficult to give him. Wanted her to tell him that she loved him. And that, no, she could not do. He found talking so much easier than she did. He could say things she never could. So naturally, it was always he that said the things. And then for some reason, he would mind this suddenly and he would reproach her. A heartless woman, he called her. She never told him that she loved him. But it was not so. It was not so. It was only that she could never say what she felt. Was there no crumb on his coat? Nothing she could do for him? Getting up, she stood at the window with the reddish brown stocking in her hands, partly to turn away from him, partly because she remembered how beautiful it often is, the sea at night. But she knew that he had turned his head as she turned. He was watching her. She knew that he was thinking, You are more beautiful than ever. And she felt herself very beautiful. Will you not tell me just for once that you love me? He was thinking that, for he was roused, and it being the end of the day, and their having quarreled about going to the lighthouse. But she could not do it. She could not say it. Then knowing that he was watching her, instead of saying anything, she turned, holding her stocking, and looked at him. And as she looked at him, she began to smile, For though she had not said a word, he knew, of course he knew, that she loved him. He could not deny it. And smiling, she looked out of the window and said, thinking to herself, Nothing on earth can equal this happiness. Yes, you were right. It's going to be wet tomorrow. You won't be able to go. And she looked at him smiling, for she had triumphed again. She had not said it, yet he knew. In part two, which is called Time Passes, in the course of part two, ten years pass. And in those ten years, the First World War begins and ends. Part two. Time passes. So, with the lamps all put out, the moon sunk, and a thin rain drumming on the roof, a downpouring of immense darkness began. Nothing, it seemed, could survive the flood, the profusion of darkness, which creeping in at the keyholes and crevices, stole round the window blinds, came into bedrooms, swallowed up here a jug and basin, there a bowl of red and yellow dahlias, there the sharp edges and firm bulk of a chest of drawers. The nights now are full of wind and destruction. The trees plunge and bend and their leaves fly helter-skelter until the lawn plastered with them and they lie packed in gutters and choke rain pipes and scattered damp paths. Also the sea tosses itself and breaks itself, and should any sleeper, fancying that he might find on the beach an answer to his doubts, a sharer of his solitude, throw off his bedclothes and go down by himself to walk on the sand, it is useless in such confusion to ask the knight those questions as to what and why and wherefore. Which tempt the sleeper from his bed to seek an answer. Mr. Ramsay, stumbling along a passage one dark morning, stretched his arms out, but Mrs. Ramsay, having died rather suddenly the night before, his arms, though stretched out, remained empty. The house was left, the house was deserted. It was left like a shell on a sand hill to fill with dry salt grains now that life had left it. The long night seemed to have set in. The trifling airs nibbling, the clammy breaths fumbling seemed to have triumphed. The saucepan had rusted and the mat decayed. Toads had nosed their way in. A thistle thrust itself between the tiles in the larder. The swallows nested in the drawing-room, the floor was strewn with straw, the plaster fell in shovelfuls, the rafters were laid bare, rats carried off this and that to gnaw behind the wainscots. Tortoise-shell butterflies burst from the chrysalis and pattered their life out on the window pane. Poppies sowed themselves among the dahlias, the lawn waved with long grass, giant artichokes towered among the roses, a fringed carnation flowered among the cabbages, while the gentle tapping of a weed at the window had become, on winter's nights, a drumming from sturdy trees and thorned briars which made the whole room green in summer. They never sent... "'They never wrote. "'There were things up there rotting in the drawers. "'The place was gone to rack and ruin. "'Only the lighthouse beam entered the rooms for a moment, "'sent its sudden stare over bed and wall "'in the darkness of winter, "'looked with equanimity at the thistle and the swallow, "'the rat and the straw. "'Nothing now withstood them.' Nothing said no to them. Let the wind blow. Let the poppy seed itself and the carnation mate with the cabbage. Let the swallows build in the drawing room and the thistle thrust aside the tiles and the butterfly sun itself on the faded chintz of the armchairs. Let the broken glass on the china lie out on the lawn and be tangled over with grass and wild berries. All of a sudden... Would Mrs. McNab see that the house was ready? One of the young ladies wrote. Would she get this done? Would she get that done? All in a hurry. They might be coming for the summer. Had left everything to the last. Expected to find things as they had left them. Slowly and painfully, with broom and pail, mopping, scouring, Mrs. McNab. And Mrs. Bast stayed the corruption and the rot, rescued from the pool of time that was fast closing over them, now a basin, now a cupboard, fetched up from oblivion all the Waverley novels and the tea set one morning, and in the afternoon restored to sun and air a brass fender and a set of steel fire irons. George, Mrs. Bast's son, caught the rats and cut the grass. They had the builders. Attended with the creaking of hinges and the screeching of bolts, the slamming and banging of damp, swollen woodwork, some rusty, laborious birth seemed to be taking place as the women, stooping, rising, groaning, singing, slapped and slammed upstairs now, now down the cellars. Oh, they said. The work. At last, after days of labor within, of cutting and digging without, dusters were flicked from the windows, the windows were shut too, keys were turned all over the house, the front door was banged, it was finished. And now, as if the cleaning and the scrubbing and the scything and the mowing had drowned it, there rose that half-heard melody, that intermittent music which the ear half-catches but lets fall, a bark, a bleat, irregular, intermittent, yet somehow related, the hum of an insect, the tremor of cut grass, bird yet somehow belonging, the jar of a beetle, the squeak of a wheel, loud, low, but mysteriously related, which the ear strains to bring together and is always on the verge of harmonizing, but they are never quite heard, never fully harmonized, and at last in the evening, one after another, the sounds die out, and the harmony falters, and silence falls; with the sunset sharpness was lost, and like a mist rising, Quiet rose, quiet spread, the wind settled, loosely the world shook itself down to sleep, darkly here, without a light to it, save what came green suffused through the leaves or pale on the white flowers in the bed by the window. Lily Briscoe had her bag carried up to the house late one evening. In September. Part three is called The Lighthouse, and it takes place ten years after the first scene. Some of the family and some of the guests have returned. Mr. Ramsay, with his daughter Cam, and his now 16 year old son James, have just embarked in a small fishing boat to go to the lighthouse. Lily Briscoe has set up her easel on the same spot in the lawn where she'd been trying to paint Mrs. Ramsay and James as they sat in the window ten years earlier. Part three The Lighthouse. So they're gone, she thought, sighing with relief and disappointment. Her sympathy seemed to be cast back. Back on her like a bramble sprung across her face. She felt curiously divided, as if one part of her were drawn out there. It was a still day, hazy. The lighthouse looked this morning at an immense distance, the other fixed itself doggedly, solidly here on the lawn. She saw her canvas as if it had floated up and placed itself white and uncompromisingly directly before her. It seemed to rebuke her. She looked blankly at the canvas with its uncompromising white stare. From the canvas to the garden, there was something something she remembered in the relations of those lines cutting across, slicing down in the mass of the hedge with its green cave of blues and browns, which stayed in her mind, which had tied a knot in her mind so that at odds and ends of time, involuntarily, as she walked along the Brompton Road, as she brushed her hair, she found herself painting that picture, passing her eye over it, and untying the knot in imagination. But there was all the difference in the world between this planning airily away from the canvas and actually taking her brush and making the first mark. She had taken the wrong brush, and her easel, rammed into the earth so nervously, was at the wrong angle. And now that she had put that right, and in so doing had subdued the impertinences and irrelevancies that plucked her attention and made her remember how she was such and such a person and had such and such relations to people, she took her hand and raised her brush. For a moment, it stayed trembling in a painful but exciting ecstasy in the air. Where to begin? That was the question. At what point to make the first mark? One line placed on the canvas committed her to innumerable risks, to frequent and irrevocable decisions. All that, in idea, seemed simple, became, in practice, immediately complex. As the waves shape themselves symmetrically from the cliff top, but to the swimmer among them are divided by steep gulfs and foaming crests, Still, the risk must be run, the mark made. With a curious physical sensation, as if she were urged forward and at the same time must hold herself back, she made her first quick, decisive stroke. The brush descended. It flickered brown over the white canvas. It left a running mark. A second time she did it. A third time. And so pausing and so flickering, she attained a dancing, rhythmical movement, as if the pauses were one part of the rhythm and the strokes another, and all were related, and so lightly and swiftly, pausing, striking, she scored her canvas with brown, running, nervous lines, which had no sooner settled than they enclosed, she felt it looming out at her, a space, Down in the hollow of one wave she saw the next wave towering higher and higher above her for what could be more formidable than that space. Here she was again, she thought, stepping back to look at it, drawn out of gossip, out of living, out of community with people into the presence of this formidable ancient enemy of hers, this other thing, this truth. This reality, which suddenly laid hands on her, emerged stark at the back of appearances and commanded her attention. She was half unwilling, half reluctant. Why always be drawn out and coiled away? Why not left in peace? It was an exacting form of intercourse, anyhow. Other worshipful objects were content with worship. Men, women, God— All let one kneel prostrate, but this form, were it only the shape of a white lampshade looming on a wicker table, roused one to perpetual combat, challenged one to a fight in which one was bound to be worsted. Always, it was in her nature or in her sex, she did not know which. Before she exchanged the fluidity of life for the concentration of painting, she had a few moments of nakedness where she seemed like an unborn soul, a soul reft of body, hesitating on some windy pinnacle and exposed without protection to all the blasts of doubt. Why then did she do it? She looked at the canvas, lightly scored with running lines. It would be hung in the servants' bedrooms. It would be rolled up and stuffed under a sofa. What was the good of doing it then? And she heard some voice saying, She couldn't paint, saying, She couldn't create, as if she were caught up in one of those habitual currents in which, after a certain time, experience forms in the mind so that one repeats words without being aware any longer of who originally spoke them. "'Can't paint, can't write,' she murmured monotonously, anxiously considering what her plan of attack should be. For the mass loomed before her. It protruded. She felt it pressing on her eyeballs.' Then, as if some juice necessary for the lubrication of her faculties were spontaneously squirted, she began precariously dipping among the blues and umbers, moving her brush hither and thither, but now it was heavier and went slower, as if it had fallen in with some rhythm which was dictated to her. She kept looking at the hedge, at the canvas, by what she saw, so that while her hand quivered with life, this rhythm was strong enough to bear her along with it on its current. Certainly she was losing consciousness of outer things. And as she lost consciousness of outer things, and her name, and her personality, and her appearance, her mind kept throwing up from its depths scenes and names and sayings and memories and ideas like a fountain spurting over that glaring, hideously deep difficult white space while she modelled it with blues and greens. Charles Tansley used to say that, she remembered. Women can't paint, can't write. Coming up behind her, he had stood close beside her, a thing she hated, as she painted on this very spot. This survived after all these years' complete so that she dipped into it to refashion her memory of him, and there it stayed in the mind, affecting one almost like a work of art. Like a work of art, she repeated, looking from her canvas to the drawing-room steps and back again. She must rest for a moment. And resting, looking from one to the other vaguely, the old question which traversed the sky of the soul perpetually, the vast, the general question, which was apt to particularize itself at such moments as these, when she released faculties that had been on the strain, it stood over her, paused over her, darkened over her. What is the meaning of life? (laughs) That was all a simple question, one that tended to close in on one with years. The great revelation had never come. The great revelation perhaps never did come. Instead, there were little daily miracles, illuminations, matches struck unexpectedly in the dark. Here was one, this, that, and the other. She walked a pace or two to the end of the lawn to see whether down there on the beach she could see that little company setting sail. Down there among the little boats which floated, some with their sails furled, some slowly, for it was very calm moving away. There was one rather apart from the others. The sail was even now being hoisted. She decided that there, in that very distant and entirely silent little boat, Mr. Ramsay was sitting with James. Now they had got the sail up. Now, after a little flagging and silence, she watched the boat take its way with deliberation, past the other boats, out to sea. The sails flapped over their heads. The water chuckled and slapped the sides of the boat, which drowsed motionless in the sun. "'Now and then the sails rippled with a little breeze in them, "'but the ripple ran over them and ceased. "'The boat made no motion at all. "'Mr. Ramsay sat in the middle of the boat. "'He would be impatient in a moment,' James thought. "'The sail, upon which James had his eyes fixed "'until it had become to him like a person whom he knew, "'sagged entirely. "'There they came to a stop, "'flapping about.' waiting for a breeze, in the hot sun, miles from shore, miles from the lighthouse. Everything in the whole world seemed to stand still. The lighthouse became immovable, and the line of the distant shore became fixed. It will rain, he remembered his father, saying. You won't be able to go to the lighthouse. The lighthouse was then a silvery, misty-looking tower with a yellow eye that opened suddenly and softly in the evening. Now, James looked at the lighthouse. He could see the whitewashed rocks, the tower stark and straight. He could see that it was barred with black and white. He could see windows in it. He could even see washing spread on the rocks to dry. So that was the lighthouse, was it? No, the other was also the lighthouse, for nothing was simply one thing. The other lighthouse was true, too. It was sometimes hardly to be seen across the bay. In the evening, one looked up and saw the eye opening and shutting, and the light seemed to reach them in that airy, sunny garden where they sat. Not a breath of wind blew. There he sat with his hand on the tiller in the sun, staring at the lighthouse, powerless to move, powerless to flick off these grains of misery which settled on his mind one after another. A rope seemed to bind him there, and his father had knotted it, and he could only escape by taking a knife and plunging it. But at that moment, the sail swung slowly round, filled slowly out, The boat seemed to shake itself and then to move off half-conscious in her sleep. And then she woke and shot through the waves. The relief was extraordinary and the fishing line slanted taut across the side of the boat. They had tacked and they were sailing swiftly, buoyantly on long rocking waves which handed them on from one to the other with an extraordinary lilt and exhilaration beside the reef. On the left a row of rocks showed brown through the water which thinned and became greener and on one a higher rock a wave incessantly broke and spurted a little column of drops which fell down in a shower. One could hear the slap of the water and the patter of falling drops and a kind of hushing and hissing sound from the waves rolling and gambling and slapping the rocks as if they were wild creatures who were perfectly free and tossed and tumbled and sported like this forever. Now they could see the two men on the lighthouse watching them and making steady to meet them. "'The sea without a stain on it,' thought Lily Briscoe, "'still standing and looking out over the bay. "'The sea stretched like silk across the bay. "'Distance held an extraordinary power. "'They had been swallowed up in it,' she felt. "'They were gone forever. "'They had become part of the nature of things. "'It was so calm.' It was so quiet. So much depends, then, thought Lily Briscoe, looking at the sea, which had scarcely a stain on it, which was so soft that the sails and the clouds seemed set in its blue. So much depends, she thought, upon distance, whether people are near us or far from us, for her feeling for Mr. Ramsay changed as he sailed further and further across the bay. It seemed to be elongated, stretched out. He seemed to become more and more remote. He and James seemed to be swallowed up in that blue, that distance. It was all in keeping with this silence, this emptiness, and the unreality of the early morning hour. It was a way things had sometimes, she thought, lingering for a moment, and looking at the long, glittering windows and the plume of blue smoke. They became unreal. Before habits had spun themselves across the surface, one felt that same unreality, which was so startling, felt something emerge. Life was most vivid then. One could be at one's ease. It was some such feeling of completeness, perhaps, which, ten years ago, standing almost where she stood now, had made her say that she must be in love with the place. Love had a thousand shapes. He must have reached it, said Lily Briscoe aloud, Feeling suddenly completely tired out. For the lighthouse had become almost invisible, had melted away into a blue haze, and the effort of looking at it and the effort of thinking of him landing there, which both seemed to be one and the same effort, had stretched her to the utmost. Ah, but she was relieved. He has landed, she said aloud. It is finished. Quickly. As if she were recalled by something over there, she turned to her canvas. There it was, her picture. Yes, with all its greens and blues, its lines running up and across, its attempt at something. It would be hung in the attics, she thought. It would be destroyed. But what did that matter? she asked herself, taking up her brush again. She looked at the steps. They were empty. She looked at her canvas. It was blurred. With a sudden intensity, as if she saw it clear for a second, she drew a line there, in the center. It was done. It was finished. Yes, she thought, laying down her brush in extreme fatigue. I have had my vision. You have been listening to a selected condensation of Virginia Woolf's novel, To the Lighthouse. A few years ago, I read this piece at the beautiful Point Cabrillo Lighthouse for the Friends of the Fort Bragg Library. And afterwards, our librarian, Dan Hess, led a short discussion because after listening to her evocative imagery and her brilliant insight, and even though in this reading we hear the internal thoughts of only four of the characters, Virginia Woolf gives us so much to think about and to talk about. And here is a few of the things that I think about after I've read this. Mrs. Ramsey and James each wonder, is what we experience in our minds of ourselves, of others, of things, of events, is it the same as what exists objectively? Lily Briscoe says, so much depends on distance. And that thought literally opens the spaces in my mind To contemplate how much depends not only on physical distance, but also on distance in time and in art, the distance between inspiration and execution. And famously, Virginia Woolf asks, and specifically on behalf of women, although it is true for all of us, how can we be free enough to have our own vision and to know it? so much to consider so much great writing so many books so little time so that is all for this edition of for the love of reading to the lighthouse the material read on this edition of for the love of reading was selected reviewed edited and performed by linda pack the program was engineered by alicia bales This program is archived and available for online listening at kzyx.org. And at lindapack.net, you will find podcast and audio links to all of the shows aired on For the Love of Reading.